Good afternoon. I'm very delighted to be joined today by Jennifer Sharp. Jennifer's a filmmaker and has produced a film called Anecdotals. Uh, by way of introduction, we have the trailer. I got the vaccine on December 23rd of 2020. By the time I got to my car, I noticed that my face was burning and tingling. I can't feel my face. The first time I said those words was 10 months ago. I had tingling and numbness throughout my body. It ran down both my arms. Her heart felt like it was being pulled out of her body and then up through her neck. The last time I said those words was two months ago, but I'm one of the lucky ones. I, I went to the emergency room probably 15 times throughout this two month span after the shot. The doctor told me I should just, you know, get used to being handicapped. Debilitating brain fog. I have facial paresthesia and nerve pain all day long for the last five months. Paresthesia is a word that I'd never heard of a year ago, but now it wakes me up every morning. Severe, painful paresthesias, which are burning, tingling. I prepared my will and my obituary for my family. We're already this group of people living on the outside of society and everyone else is going on and doesn't either know or doesn't care. The vaccines are safe. I promise you, they are safe and effective. Getting a totally safe vaccine. The benefit of getting the vaccine far outweighs the risk. That's just a fact. Before Maddie got her final dose of the vaccine, she was a healthy 12-year-old. She had a life. She was energetic. She was not like this. I was a father of a 16-year-old son. Next week is his birthday. My government lied to me. They said it was safe. I trust science and I got the vaccine. If you trust me, you will get the vaccine. After six weeks of neurological reactions from the vaccine, I began to share my experience with people. I was shamed. I was silenced. Oh, you can't shame them. You can't call them stupid. You can't call them silly. Yes, they are. I was told that I was ethically and morally irresponsible because sharing my story could sway people away from getting vaccinated. The people who are not getting vaccines who are believing the lies on the internet instead of science, it's time to start shaming them. What else? Or leave them behind. I and many people who've had this experience have been silenced because we're told that our story is not significant because we are merely anecdotals. So the problem with being an anecdote in the time of COVID is that there's no science tracking us, making our numbers irrelevant or relevant. I have reported my symptoms to VSAFE, VAERS, CDC, FDA, Pfizer. I was fighting doctors trying to get them to listen to what was happening to her because nobody else was researching. They say we have a small percentage, but how do they truly know what the percentage is when they won't even acknowledge that we exist? How far do we have to go or who does this have to affect before it's recognized that there is a problem. We took the vaccine, we supported the vaccine. We're not irrational, we're not ignorant. We're just a group of people whose lives have drastically changed because of this and we're not included in the mainstream dialogue. You need to get vaccinated, you need to mask up, and if you don't, you are going to die. When are we gonna stop putting up with the idiots in this country? and just say you now, it's mandatory to get vaccinated. And now we're being mandated out of society. And we're finding doctors who are too afraid to give exemptions because that puts a target on their back. 
And we have businesses that won't accept exemptions anyway. If we could all just stop having so many answers and listen with wonder and listen with compassion, then this whole dialogue could change into a way more positive light. And that's what I want to do with this documentary. I want to share honestly one of the nuances of the vaccine discussion, and that's the nuance of anecdotals. I would give my whole life savings if I could go back to January 17th and never to have had to experience this in my life. So Jennifer, welcome. A fantastic film, um, full of um, moving testimony, um, full of uh, facts and sound bites that we've witnessed over the past three years, and um, a, a fantastic piece of work. Could you maybe start by just explaining what your journey into filmmaking was from being told that you were ethically and morally reprehensible to even speak to to making a, a piece of work like this? What, how did you how did you decide to uh, go down the route of uh, of making a film? All right. So yeah, thank you for having me. Um it's it was a lot of people telling me I was ethically and morally irresponsible for talking about my vaccine reaction. Um I had a reaction to my first Pfizer shot. Um it my it was a lot of paresthesia, it was a numb face, it was tingling. Um, and I noticed as I started to tell people about it, people would say, oh, you know, you shouldn't talk about this because you could scare people away from getting vaccinated. And then, you know, you'll be responsible for people dying. And people literally would say that to me. And it just blew my mind because I was just like, wow, like I've never been told not to speak about something that was truthful to me. And I also, when I spoke about it, I was not saying the vaccines are horrible, they'll kill you. I wasn't saying bad things about the vaccine. I was just talking about my experience. Um, I was willing to even say that it was rare. You know, I, I was willing to say like, hey, I'm not saying it's going to happen to everybody. I'm not even trying to scare anybody, but I, I had a reaction. Like, So enough people told me for a, a whole year, my reaction is, so I'm two years um, into my re my shot. So I've had, and um, two years later, I still have a reaction, but my reaction is very mild now. I just have pins and needles on the left side of my body. And I have like some burning and itching on my hands and feet. And that comes and goes. So that's where I am now. But like to have this continually going and for a full year, wasn't really allowed to talk about it, was shamed about it. Um, and then the mandates came and I live in Los Angeles. And because I only had one Pfizer shot, I was not allowed to participate in society. I was not allowed to go places. I would be invited to uh, parties and I'd have to tell my friend, oh, I can't go. I'm not allowed to go there. I'm not allowed to enter. There was a memorial service I was not allowed to go to. Um, and then I would tell people like, yeah, I had a reaction. And over and over people would say, oh, I've never heard of anybody having a reaction to the shot. I've never heard of anybody. And I'm like, that's because no one's allowed to talk about it. Like I put it, you put it on Facebook and they take it down. No one wants to hear about it. Nobody's talking about it. And so I'm a filmmaker. Um, I've been making movies my whole life. That's what I do. And it just, I just decided like, if no one's going to listen to me, then I'm going to tell my story in a film and I'm going to tell it to the people who won't listen to me. And that's kind of my audience. Like all you, you the people who like shut me out, don't want to know, 
I want you to listen to my experience and the experience of many others. Like that, I was in support groups with thousands of people with the same story of mine and way, way, way worse. Their lives were destroyed. And there are people now today whose lives are destroyed, who's lost their house, who are in financial ruin, who can't walk and don't know why, and they're not getting help. And when people are saying they don't exist or they're rare, or, you know, it doesn't matter, they need help. And so I just, it, it built and built and built. It took a year um, because I also knew that I would be called ethically and morally irresponsible for making this movie because people who would be like, you're being anti-vax, you're scaring people away from the vaccine. And so I, you know, I knew I was going to be stepping into the crosshairs of a battle and of name calling and of hate. And I, I waited as long as I could. And the final nail in the coffin for me making this movie was I lost my second job for not being vaccinated. And um, this was a job in January of 2022. Um, and it was a great job. I was really excited about it. And it was only a three week job, but it was a great filmmaking three week job, good money. And suddenly they called and said, you, you're not fully vaccinated. You can't have the job. And I said, hey, I'll show you an exemption. I'll show you my Vax card with one Vax, and I will also um, get tested every day. And they were like, no, if you're not fully Vax, you can't work. So that was the nail in the coffin. I was like, okay, that's my second job. I have to make this movie. Yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's astonishing now where things have somewhat moderated, just to remember the degree of insanity that was operating throughout our societies at the time. On... Um, uh, on Facebook in the UK, there was a vaccine-injured group that very quickly popped up, and it had something like 50,000 members when it was closed down. And and looking at this, this is, this is meant to be a social media, if ever, if ever there was an important job that a social media company could do, is to allow these people to communicate to one another, that was it but they were closed down. So overnight, all of that information, all of that knowledge, all of that mutual support was simply switched off. And I thought at the time it was ex an extraordinarily cruel action. Uh, we at the UK call, we get thrown off of, uh, off of YouTube. We were just about to get 100,000 subscribers and a little plaque on the wall. And um, we put out a video of uh, an audio interview of a lady whose husband was hospitalized, paralyzed with Guillain-Barre syndrome, um, unable to walk. And this was, he was mid fifties, very fit man, <clears throat> had worked all of his life, no health problems, and the vaccination had done this to him. So she told her story and she told it very factually. And it was bringing out really interesting issues because when he presented at the hospital, he was told it couldn't possibly be the vaccination because the vaccination is safe. So she had to overcome two or three very determined attempts by the medical profession to say what, is, what he was presenting with could not be real and to therefore not address the issue and not treat him appropriately. Um, she had to overcome that before she could even get him treated. So there was there was essential information in this. And not only did it get taken down, we got completely taken off of YouTube for putting that forward. Um, 
so the the idea that the heart the people harmed are not only not only kind of abandoned by the regulators by the government by a lot of the medical profession um but they must be silenced um you can't say that you can't describe your experience uh this this was one of the most uh pernicious parts of it very surprising as it kind of unfolded because you've maybe not been told you can't say this i've been told many times that you can't say dot 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 whatever the whatever the issue is that you're raising you can't discuss that and i think it's always it's always a good thing when that happens is to say, well, no, that, that means it's all the more important to discuss because it's the things you can't discuss that really need discussed. Um, yeah. when, when you started, you, you, you've unwrapped the issue in your film with a, a whole series of questions. And, and they're very good questions and they get to the heart of the matter and they're questions that demand answers. And, and the place I'd like to start uh, looking at the specifics is the first of your questions, questions the trials, were they rigorous, were they thorough? And, and it questions the level of secrecy surrounding them. Could, could, you, could you expand on what you discovered there? Yeah, so I, um, I, the sound bites for the trial was uh, rigorous and thorough. And you know that's what you heard all the time from like our agencies, the FDA. Their our trials were rigorous and thorough, rigorous and thorough. And then as I started to look into the trials, I'm like, they weren't. Um, they weren't. And so there was a few issues. One was actually the trial. So I highlight two participants who were in the trials. One was in the Pfizer trial, and one was in the AstraZeneca trial in the U.S., which was funded by the FDA. Um, although it wasn't approved in the end, it was an FDA funded trial. So it was a, in the US. And um, they, the first thing they both said that was wild was that you, the trial had a tracking app. So you had an app on your phone and every day you had to say, how are you feeling? Do you have any symptoms? And then they would give you a checklist of symptoms. So would it be like headache, coughing, fever? Well, you know, and if, and you had to check one or the other, and there was no box to say, can't walk because that wasn't an option. <laughs> so if you found yourself paralyzed, there was actually no way to report that in the trial. You could only check boxes of pre-existing thoughts of what you might have, and then mild, mild, moderate, and intense. And so if you have a reaction that's you can't walk or that doesn't exist in the boxes, you have to uh, contact the lead trial investigator, which is a human being, and you have to tell them. And once you get human be one human being in charge of, of receiving all this information, if that human being has a strange bias or wants to interpret it differently, it all depends on how they're going to report it. It takes away the anonymous nature of being able to report your stuff, and it just leaves it in one person's hand. And that's a problem. And for Maddie, the 12-year-old who was in the Pfizer trial, who was in a wheelchair and a feeding tube, um, <clears throat> they reported when when the emergency use uh, use authorization um, was approved by the FDA on that same day for children 12 to 15, she was actually in the hospital at, on the day it was approved and her symptoms were not marked down. And the the emergency use authorization and the New England Journal of Medicine, one of the authors 
was the lead investigator of her trial in Cincinnati, Ohio. So the lead investigator of her trial, who was the one that they had to report any additional reactions to, was one of the authors of the New England Journal of Medicine, where Maddie's symptoms were not mentioned. So that was Maddie's story. But then we had another story that was very similar of someone who had to leave the trial after her first shot because it was so bad. And then because she didn't take the second shot, she wasn't included in the trial. So anybody who left after their first shot, it just says withdrew. And it's and it seems willingly withdrew. It doesn't say, oh, withdrew because they were sick. Like, so you start to see this. So it was like, um, so basically the people who had reactions in that AstraZeneca trial weren't noted at all because if they had a reaction after their first shot, like they they weren't noted, they were just withdrew. So it wasn't, they were, didn't have to note anything. So that was bad. And then there was also a whistleblower, Brooke Jackson, who worked the Pfizer trial with Ventavia. And she reported just a mass of problems. And she's been doing this for years and she's a professional. And she went in and she was one of the managers of the trial. And she was like, first of all, they've hired like people who are working, who are like fast food workers to like come and be the one to, 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 to actually, I think, give the shots. Like, I think they can train people how to just give the shots or at least do the main part of it. And they're paying people like minimum wage and getting, you know, people who had nothing to do with medical to come and, and do the legwork of the trials, right? And then they have the managers above, but they didn't know what they were doing. They didn't understand the strictness of what had to happen. <clears throat> they also, uh, things were left out in the open. So patients were unblinded, people were labeled wrong, all this stuff was happening. And she started taking pictures she went to her boss. Her boss was like, yeah, um, we just don't talk about it. Like, we're going to fix it. You know, we're just overworked. There's too many people. Like, we're working on it. But she finally, she realized that Ventavia wasn't going to do anything about it. So she went straight to the FDA. She reported Ventavia to the FDA. And the FDA um, didn't never said anything. But like six hours after she reported it, she was fired. And to this day, the FDA, or at least till the day of when I was making the movie, the FDA never went to Ventavia and never, never went to look at what the trials were. And that was something I learned as well, which is that for the trials, Pfizer oversees its own trials. The pharmaceutical companies oversee their own trials. So Pfizer was overseeing Ventavia. So Pfizer collects all the data and then Pfizer presents the data to the FDA. So the FDA makes all of its decisions on whether they're gonna approve the drug based on the information that Pfizer presents them. The FDA does not double check Pfizer. The FDA doesn't run their own trial. They don't oversee the trials. So it's all up to Pfizer to be honest, run the trial right, and then present the data to get it authorized. And that right there is a problem. Even if Pfizer is not lying and everything's on the, you can't trust Pfizer to regulate its own trial. Like that's just not, and then the fact that Brooke Jackson actually reported it and the FDA still didn't go and assess the Ventavia clinic to see what was wrong. Um, that's a problem. And then there's many more. So like, that's, yeah, that's how I start the movie with the trials. And then also the fact that Pfizer and the FDA decided that they couldn't release the data from the trials for 75 years. And they made this whole thing, like for 75 years, you know, we won't be able to make the uh, data available. So finally, like a judge had to overrule that and force them to release it oh, like a certain amount every few months because that was ridiculous. So there was just a lot of things that were kind of ridiculous that were like, hey, if these are rigorous and thorough, there's a lot of secrecy. <laughs>
Well, this is this is the point that that if it's if it's secret, if the data is not available, it's not science because it's got to be open for scrutiny. It's got to be. We have a problem in science with re with repeatability or, or the lack of it anyway, but it has to be open for people to to check. And and the the drug companies have got huge previous on this, including in the vaccine field. Um, there's the the infamous um, meeting that they had. Uh, looking at the risk of timerosol-containing uh, vaccines, where one of the one of the officials from the drug companies left the meeting to go and phone his son tell, and tell him not to vaccinate his grandson, and then went back into the meeting and then discussed how to manipulate the data so that the signal, the safety signal, went away. Um, and I, I remember looking at many years ago the work of a of an American um, doctor and radiologist called David Ayub. He was he was trying to argue with the local medics about the safety of tomorosol containing vaccines, and they would they would wave the CDC's safety study paper in in front of him. And say, look look at all these studies. It's safe. He said, Have you read any of these studies? And of course they hadn't. And when you dived into the detail, and it's the detail of the data that matters, they had things that were in, on the list of safety studies that, that basically uh, was testing on animals, uh, rabbits or rats or something, and, it's, and the conclusion was, well, there was no birth defects. But when you read into the paper, all the animals died. Yes, there was no birth defects because the animals were dead. And... He said, you know, this was a safety study. He said, it was, it was garbage. The things that were held up to be proof, when you looked at the detail, it evaporates. And this is where openness is, is absolutely critical. Um, and, and this kind of takes me on to my second point, because we, we're being asked to take so many of these things on faith. We're going to hide the data. We're going to lock it away for 75 years. Um, but trust us, you know, trust Pfizer, trust, trust AstraZeneca and trust the CDC and trust the FDA. We've got a, an organization in Britain called the MHRA. We've been through this. We'll come to risk assessment in a little while, but we've been around all of the authorities in Britain and we're saying, right, we, we have a question. Here's our question. And one of the questions we were asking was, we've now had um, the drug companies, AstraZeneca, admit that their vaccine kills some people, right? The, the, their own documentation talks about adverse reactions with a fatal outcome. They mean killing people. So if we're giving something that we know is going to kill some people, there must be a risk assessment which, which must be quantified and must be rigorous to say, well, the, the, the overall benefit is, is so good. Because the, the, the drug company's own position was that the benefits outweigh the harms. So, okay, where is the, the risk assessment? Can you give us the data? So we went to government agency after government agency, and they all pointed to someone else. We don't have that data. Go somewhere else. And after we chased round, it all went back to one agency, the MHRA, and they wouldn't answer at all. So the, the, lack of, the lack of transparency was fundamental, and we were essentially asked to take this thing on faith. Um, but the flip side is, when people 
then present and say, I have been personally harmed. Here's my story. We're asked not to take that on faith. The burden of proof for those harmed is all of a sudden enormous. You know, you have to prove medically the causation. Can you, can you expand a little bit on the, 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 the barriers put and the burden of proof requirements put on those harmed before their stories would be deemed acceptable or reliable, repeatable even? The first thing when you're harmed is one of the first things people will say is, are you sure it was the vaccine? How do you know it was a vaccine? I actually had somebody, a friend of mine, give me a lecture about how he had a situation in his life where it really made sense that somebody was hurt because of something that had happened, but it just happened that it was the same day that someone was diagnosed with the disease on the same day they were in a car accident or something. And he was like, you know, things happen. Like, you know, it, so things can really look like they're the same, like they're like they are because of something, but you really don't know. And he gave me this whole lecture about it, you know, and I'm like, you know, when you get um when you get a shot in your arm and that night everything changes you're you're pretty clear what it is like you know what it is but we're the ones who have to say and have to prove everything that's happening and um so so it's been really hard and the thing is is like the government should have to prove too the pharmaceutical company should have to prove that it's not because that's what i say in the movie is i'm like well, why do we have to prove that it is? Like, how do you know that it's not the vaccine? Like, how, how do you know that it is the vaccine? But how do you know that it's not the vaccine? So they should have to prove that it's not the vaccine. But they're not proving anything. They're not studying us. They're not running trials with the injured. So there's no proof that they're showing. So it becomes on us, who are not the scientists, but who know our own body and know our own situation, who have are the ones who are always constantly saying, well, how do we know it's real? How do we know it's real? There's a woman in the movie who has a trach tube who I interview and she's in a wheelchair and she has this trach tube because she has spasms in her trachea. And um, somebody after seeing the movie uh, reached out and said, said she was a nurse. This woman was like, I'm a nurse. And the woman with the trach tube is a complete fake because I'm a nurse and I know that if you have a trach tube, you would not be speaking the way that woman is speaking. She, she wouldn't be able to talk that way. And so she's like, she's a total fake. And it's like still people trying to prove. So I went, the woman, her name is Nikki and she actually has a whole TikTok page where she has followed her entire journey, including all of her surgeries and all of her deep moments where she writes letters and stuff. So I actually went to Nikki's page and I have some stuff from Nikki because I interviewed her and I have pictures of her post-surgery with bloody holes in her throat crying. And I got like six pictures of her with the open throat, one with the bloody tube, um, two essays she wrote about having a trach. And I sent it back to the woman who was calling it fake and was like, you know, you might want to be careful, you know, think it's telling, calling people that you don't know that you haven't seen in person liars, just because you're a nurse doesn't mean that you can assess everybody from any point. And this is a hundred percent true. And here is your proof. And I, I do that with the movie. Like there's been a few things where people have said, well, that can't be true. And I take the time to show them the proof. But it's like, it is like, why is it my burden of proof too? But it's like, I have to prove that everything in the movie is true. I have to prove that these reactions are true as opposed, because people so easily just come and say they're not. But the people who say they're not do not have to prove that they're not.
All they have to do is say that they're not true. And suddenly they have this validity that we don't have. And, and this, this obviously relates to the, the title of the movie because anecdotals, you know, the, this is not evidence, it's just an anecdote. And, and this always puzzled me because medical research is simply um, founded on a series of observations. You're observing sequence of events. This happens, then this happens. And it ha that, that sequence happens over and over. So we now think that the, 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 the first action causes the second. So we'll start to look for a, a mechanism, a causative link. I mean, that's been the that's been the history of medical research. You start off with an a series of observations, a series of anecdotes, if you want to phrase it that way, and that's that kicks off the research. Now, again, in the vaccine field, um, we had in the UK um, speaking out over MHRA a doctor called Andrew Wakefield. Um, and um, he was hounded out of the, the medical profession. His crime was to say, I'm seeing a series of, a pattern of events, people presenting in a certain way after the, after the um, uh, measles, mumps, rubella vaccination, and I'm seeing a, a series of syndromes uh, and I'm treating it in this way, and I think there's an issue that requires further investigation over the the cause, and the cause apparently being the vaccination. And that was, it was simply an observation. It was an early stage report, and he was hounded out and um, accused, the title of his book's Callous Disregard. He, and through this, um, what I think looking into his case shows is here you have someone who was standing on the very finest principles that the medical profession ever managed to assemble in terms of care for their patients and in terms of, of, of research integrity. And because the answer he was coming up with, or the questions, answers, the questions he was, he was raising were unacceptable. He was hounded out, and his career was 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 ruined, and um, and he became an anathema. He became an outsider. Now, um, an outsider deeply loved by many people on whose behalf he speaks, but still, from the medical profession, he was cast aside. Um, have you come across similar cases in the United States where people have faced similar sanctions? Doctors have faced similar sanctions. Yes. Very much. Um, the doctors who are, who speak out, and it's doctors who speak out and say, hey, there might be other ways to treat COVID. And that's what was wild is that it wasn't even doctor, you know, doctors like taking their time speaking out negatively about the vaccine or whatever. It was like, hey, there's other things you can do. Maybe getting the vaccine is not for everybody. Every single one of those doctors got censored. And got uh, Dr. Merrick is a really strong case of a doctor in a hospital who was treating his patients with, he had found, you know, vitamin C, whatever. He had found his own protocol to help help his patients. And because his protocol was not the, the CDC protocol, he ended up getting fired. He's had his medical license reviewed. There's been many other doctors that that's happened to. And it's really, um, that was another thing that's just, 
you just all these questions that make you ask questions. Like I say, the movie Anecdotals is about asking questions, not about agreeing on answers. And there's a lot of questions, but it's like when doctors can't tell you can't treat their patients, then that's a problem. And, you know, I also found it I found it interesting because when you did get covid, you weren't helped. You were told to stay at home and rest until you're so bad and your oxygen level is so low that you come to the hospital and then your odds of dying are very great. And I was like, no matter what, they should send you home and say, hey, take vitamin C or walk every five hours or or even like what I learned is like lying in the prone position, lying in your stomach actually opens up your lungs. So if you're having oxygen problems, um, with your oxygen levels, if you lie on your stomach for like an hour, um, passageways in your lungs kind of open that don't open and you can get more oxygen and that can really help save you. There are little things like that, that we should have all been told during the crisis of COVID to help us treat it on our own until we got so bad in the hospital. And that wasn't being told. It was like the only solution was get vaccinated, get vaccinated. And it was, that was, a, that was very clear. So any doctor who was trying to help in any other way was not allowed to was was censored was not, and twitter right now is being proven that the government the u.s government has been talking to social media and telling social media to censor certain people and as basically people especially doctors and credentialed doctors doctors who have gone to the best schools in the world you know stanford doctors like they they know what they're talking about at least they know what they're theorizing about and they're not making you know these dire things that the that the that Fauci is you know making these things that are like it is true this is how you survive this is the facts i am the science they're not even saying they're the science they're just saying hey i'm seeing certain things and yes so the same thing happened here in the united states with doctors and it's it's really frustrating and there are doctors who have lost their li licenses and there's a lot of lawsuits happening Yes, it's profoundly anti science i mean despite Fauci saying if you criticize me you're criticizing the science it's, it's a profoundly anti-scientific approach. And of course, it's, it's based on fear and intimidation. I mean, are, are doctors in America afraid? Yes, they are very afraid. And I had to get, I wanted to interview doctors for the documentary. And I knew that was going to be a really hard thing because I'm also asking doctors to put themselves in the spotlight, you know, um, so when I needed my first medical exemption for my job that I had been working at for a year already, and then suddenly they're like, okay, everybody show your proof of vaccination. And I didn't, and I wasn't, I had one shot, so I wasn't fully vaccinated. I went to the one doctor that I had been going to and um, asked for an exemption and she wouldn't give me one. And um, she was like, she and I got really angry and I was like, you know, it's going to be your fault that I lose this job because you're the only doctor that's seen me. I can't ask any other doctor to give me an exemption. And this was over email and she ended up calling me at home and she was like, I am so sorry, but it is a really hard time for doctors right now, especially in California. That's where I am. And she she goes, I've had to make a decision that if I start giving exemptions, I'm going to have a target on my back. I risk losing my medical license. It will be reviewed and I will could lose my practice. And I think I can help more people by not giving exemptions, but keeping my practice open and helping my patients than losing my license. So I'm making the decision to keep my practice open and not give medical exemptions. And she said, I am so sorry. And she goes, do not get the second shot. 
I'm aware you had a reaction. I'm totally on your side. It's just a really, really ugly time. And she even said, I'm not, I can't even, I cannot even report your reaction to the CDC. Like I'm not, I, as a doctor, she couldn't even, she didn't even report my reaction to the, to the CDC. Cause she was like, once you start reporting adverse reactions, people start looking at you. Once you use the word adverse reactions. So she's like, she stayed away from it. And that's, that was my personal experience with the doctor. And then I found out, I posted that on my support group and everybody else joined in and had a story about doctors that wouldn't give them exemptions and doctors who are afraid of this. And I realized it was every doctor and that the whole country. So if the doctors are too afraid to speak the truth, what does that do to informed consent by the patient? It's none. It leaves us no informed consent. There's no informed consent. Um, and that's what's, that's what's really scary. So myocarditis is something that at this point most people have heard of, and it is 100% recognized by the companies and the FDA and the CDC that myocarditis is a known risk of the vaccine. But, you know, the level of it is what's disputed. So the FDA and CDC will say, it's a very mild form. It only happens in in young boys for the most part. And it's very mild and it goes away in a few months and there's no nothing, you know, no big deal. But one thing they say is that in the, in um, uh, the uh, Woodcock, no, Janet Woodcock, yeah, the FDA and the CDC, they're talking about it and they're just like, you know, you just have to rest. You just have to rest. It was Peter Marks. That's who it was at the FDA. And he goes, you just have to don't run a marathon for a few months and you'll be OK. But the thing is, is that there's a lot of, you know, young boys running marathons. So what happens if you do run a marathon? Like you should at least know that myocarditis is a risk. So everybody who gets the vaccine should be told about myocarditis everybody, but especially young boys. And they should say, hey, if you start feeling weird chest pain, if you start feeling a weird, then that might be a reaction, which might mean that you need to calm down. So go to the doctor, get your heart levels checked. Um, you need to rest. Like that's all you say. And then maybe it's fine. Maybe your heart will be fine. Maybe it's worth getting vaccinated, you know, but tell people that if you have heart issues to watch out and they don't. And um, there was a cameraman on my movie who was filming the day I interviewed the doctor and we were talking about myocarditis. And he's like a, in his 30s. He's a man in his 30s. He um, was vaccinated. He was completely vaccinated and I think he'd had his booster. Um, so he'd been vaccinated to three shots. And at the end of the day, he was like, could you tell me about that thing again? What was it called? The heart thing? The, what was it called? And I'm like, myocarditis? And he's like, yeah, I'd never heard of that. What is that about again? And I'm like, you're a 30 year old man and you've had three shots and you don't know you've never even heard of the world myocarditis like that's wrong you know maybe you should still get the shot i mean i'm not saying you should i have opinions this isn't about my opinion this is about showing the things that are wrong but it's like still get the shot maybe give people the shot but tell them about myocarditis so they're aware that this could happen and then they should make a choice and that's informed consent then they make a choice like i'm willing to take that chance the ground beat of um, of of propaganda that was everywhere at this time as well it also undermined informed consent because they were using they were using fear the authorities were using fear to drive the vaccination program they were using coercion uh, we had the prime minister of new zealand saying we're going to have essentially two classes of people 
will have people with full rights and people without full rights. And that's the vaccinated and the unvaccinated. And and someone said, put, put this to her as a question. Said, but obviously you don't mean that, but is that not what we're talking about? And she says, no, absolutely we do mean that. That's exactly what we mean. So it, it was, um, your rights will be removed. Um, you need to be afraid. You're going to die if you don't take the vaccine. You'll be completely safe if you do take the vaccine. So all of this was, and you brought this out, I thought, beautifully in your film, with lots of quotes and little short clips of people like Fauci making announcements um, to the population. Um, this was the background, and um, you had the population as a whole react reacted to this. Now, in the UK, we had um, a group called Spy B who were advising the government on how to psychologically manipulate the population, on how to get peer pressure within the population to coerce the population into certain forms of behaviour which they felt uh, were appropriate. So it wasn't even that it was just the media, but it was amplified through social pressure to get vaccinated. So consent was lost in, on so many levels. And if the doctors have can't or were too afraid to tell the truth or didn't know or didn't care what the truth was, the, your, your last protection is, is pretty much gone. Um, but you mentioned kids there, and this, this is just another thing that we in the UK column have tried to push back and get some actual specific answers from um, the regulators at the MHRA in Britain. And we've been sadly disappointed because as the information about the level of harm that's being caused by the vaccination has become ever clearer, we started to question the advice that's been given because they're giving this to young children. And we've watched the data very carefully and we know the data, if you're young and you're healthy and you don't have any other serious health concern, you're not at risk from COVID. I mean, the number of healthy young children who have died from COVID is so small as to be essentially unmeasurable. And we look at cases like Maddie that you talked about earlier and said, well, the harm is certainly measurable. Where's your risk assessment? You know you're going to cause harm. There must be a risk assessment and it must be specific to various age groups. Can we see the data? And of course, the answer is either no or we don't hold the data or we're simply ignored. Um, can, you know, have you looked at the specific case of, of, of young people, of children and young adults um, and how they are being treated through this? So the young people seem to be victims of protecting the old people. Um, it, the, what they say is, and Dr. Paul Offit says this in the movie too, is he's like, yeah, it might be, there might only be like a few hundred kids who die of COVID. But like if we, you know, but they live with their grandparents and, you know, so the kids that don't die of COVID are, could spread it to their grandparents, could spread it to their family members. So keeping everybody safe, it helps to get all the kids vaccinated and if a few hundred kids are going to actually die of covid anyway like why not why not vaccinate all of them to protect the few that's literally what they say because it's a safe vaccine that what is what is said by the fda and the people it's a safe vaccine why not vaccinate everybody to protect 
the weak, the weak kids. And, and that's just not true because I've seen, there's a lot of children I have spoke to with adverse reactions. There are children in the group with adverse reactions and that's not being, that's not being taken into account. And also I remember when they did the trial on, um, so on five to 12 year olds, five to 11 year olds, um, when they did the trial, they, it was already made clear. And there was a statement that, um, 12, I'm trying to remember the age groups, what 12 to 17 year olds, I think 12 or 12 to 16 year olds in that age group, myocarditis was one in 5,000. That was the stat at the time. It's actually, depending on whether it's Moderna, depending on it's Pfizer, it could be a lot, um, it could be a lot less than one in 5,000, but I'm going to say one in 5,000 to err on the larger side that like one in 5,000, 12 to 17 year olds get myocarditis from the vaccine that was out there at the time of the trials of the five to 12 year olds in the five to 12 year old trial. There were only, there were less than 2000 kids in that trial. And to me, that was also like, shouldn't we be Shouldn't you at least have 5,000 kids in the trial because you know that there's a risk factor of myocarditis of one in 5,000 in the next higher age group? Why are you doing a trial in the younger kids that only that has less than 2,000? Like, I felt like the trials done for the kids were very rushed and were not thorough and should have been way bigger. And I just know as a, I'm not a parent, but if I was a parent, I don't think I would feel comfortable vaccinating my kid with something that had only been tried in 1700 kids. Um, and that's, you know, and I, I don't think any got placebos in that one, but some of the other trials, half of them would get placebos. So like not even all of them got the the vaccine. And I, it's just, it, it didn't make sense. The trials, like, I guess because they were approved already in adults, they felt like the vaccine was safe enough that they just needed to do some little extra touch up random trials with a few age groups and it would like be okay for everybody but the trials for the kids if you if you look at them they're not thorough they're not comprehensive and so there's that period also with the fact that kids are not dying of covid at the rate like they're not and people are like yes some kids are and i know a kid who died but the numbers of the kids who die of covid like are so small. And then there's also questions about, did they really die of COVID? And then I talk about in the movie, a, a headline that the New York Times posted, a New York Times posted a headline that was a CDC trial that stated that children who get COVID are, are more likely to develop diabetes um, after getting COVID. And I, I saw that headline on the New York Times and that was the headline. It was like, children more at risk at higher risk for diabetes after covid and that's a headline that's going to scare you if you're a parent like oh my god i don't want my kid to get covid because they'll get diabetes and there's all these things that they start scaring you with or they'll get long covid so we still need to get vaccinated even if they're not dying but then you look at these trials and they're not they're not good they're not comprehensive the it was done by the cdc and <clears throat> it didn't talk about the fact that like maybe the kids who actually got covid were only the kids who ended up in the hospital, who were kids who already had comorbidities, who were kids who already had a chance of getting diabetes or, you know, like there's all these things they didn't account for. It was a completely discredited um, uh, study, but yet the New York Times gave that headline. So they would, any chance they got to give a headline to scare parents into wanting to vaccinate their kids, you could just see the manipulation. And it's just like, here's the thing. I think there's enough people that are willing to take a chance on this vaccine 
knowing that it might not be perfect, that you don't need to force people and you don't need to lie to people. You know, Maddie, the girl, the 12 year old who's in a, you know, who was damaged by the trial, but she was in a trial. That was a parent who was willing to put her kid in a trial. In, in the world, there's a lot of parents who are willing to put their kids in trials. There would be many parents who would be willing to vaccinate their kids willingly to help see what's happening and willing to vaccinate themselves that they don't need to be mandated and lied to. Like, just tell the truth, you know? The kids is a really, the kids is a really hard thing to deal with what they're doing and that they're trying to get it approved for six month old or it is approved for six months old. And here they put it on the childhood vaccine schedule. They've suggested it. The CDC has recommended the COVID shot for the childhood vaccine schedule. And that makes no sense. Like we're not even keeping up with the variants. Well, because Robert, uh, Robert Kennedy Jr. highlighted this and uh, I think his position, as I understand it, is that once the emergency uh, endorsement or for the use of the vaccine expires, uh, in order to qualify for immunity from prosecution under American legislation, um, the vaccine needs to be on the childhood schedule. Otherwise, they they could be open for lawsuits for the for the harm that's caused. So he's suggesting this is legally driven and not medically driven, which is an interesting point. Um, just before we we kind of round up with kind of the the the, the fight back against this and and finding um, uh, finding friends. Um, through uh, all of these difficulties. One little uh, uh, data point that really struck me from your film is the redefinition of terrorism. Could you tell us about that? Yeah, so the, uh, the Department of Homeland Defense um, very quietly in February of 2022, very quietly added to the definition of terrorism um, misinformation on COVID-19 and I couldn't believe. And so they update, they update the definitions of terrorism from time to time. And they did say it was like, to be completely fair, like they did say it was while we're in the state of emergency. So it's a temporary update. And I actually looked recently, like a year later to see if they still had it. And it looks like it's not still there, but like, that's not the point. Like it was during that time that they uh, they update. If you went to the definition of terrorism, it was mis things that go against that could harm the government, and including misinformation on COVID nineteen. And it's like, who's to say is the misinformation? Like that's the problem because the biggest mis misinformation we have gotten is actually from the government, and they're the ones who are saying what misinformation is. So that being said, I could be a terrorist for making this movie. And that's what was scary is it's like, once you make that, once you use the word terrorism, like national terror, like suddenly the doors open and you can do whatever you want to these people. And so, and like Joe Rogan was being attacked during that time for having doctors on that had been banned. Um, the talk show host was having all these doctors on and it became this whole thing that Joe Rogan is, is you know, anti-vax and doing all these bad things. But that suddenly would allow them to go after all these people who are showing you different stories and call them terrorists. And that's really scary. And that, and I have a link to that, I wanna say, um, and I still have a link on the website to the movie, anecdotalsmovie.com, I have a reference page. And every single study mentioned, every single news clip shown, regardless of what side, every, there's a link, you click on it and you can watch the entire 
thing. And so when I talk about the Homeland Security changing its definition of terrorism, it's in chronological order. It's towards the end of the movie, but you can find that link on my website. It takes you to that page where it, it shows you exactly how they put it. And that's really scary. To, to finish off, I'd like to discuss um, some of the kind of fight back on this. And we at the UK column have always been quite closely associated with uh, with movements that are pushing back against government because we'll report on them when the mainstream media won't. And um, often we end up in quite close discussions with them. So we understand that we see these things almost from the inside. Um, and it's been very interesting to see what works and what doesn't. And in Scotland, there was a particularly aggressive piece of legislation called Named Person, which was putting a, a state-appointed official kind of as a third parent sitting slightly above in authority the parents in every family to monitor the child's well-being, a term not defined, and if they had even a gut concern to start to take action and marshal every aspect of the state and share information, and it was all um, it was all rolled out in secret. And then they decided to well, they eventually had to tell the Scottish public, and this campaign developed against it and managed to get the whole thing flattened, ruled unlawful in the Supreme Court, gone through the Scottish courts, and it was interesting to watch how this campaign. Um, succeeded because they had such a wide range of people. I mean, they, one of the leading parts of it was the Christian Institute, but there were there were atheists, there were old school Tories, there were left wing firebrands. There was all this variety of people who believed all sorts of things, but they could see that this was wrong, and. And they didn't, they were quite happy to work with people who thought different ways and had different worldviews. As long as as long as they were agreed of what the objective was, and it's this cannot go forward, this is evil. Um, they had this wonderful, friendly, rich, cheerful, funny working relationship. And the and the political divides, ideological divides that you would have thought would have caused bickering just didn't. And these people became you know, firm friends through this. And it was, a, it was a wonderful thing to behold. Have you seen things like that happening in the fight to, to have those harmed by the vaccinations actually heard and no longer excluded and shunned? Yeah, it's been pretty amazing, like seeing it. We've been, in the United States, we've been very divided I think starting with Obama, um, there was a lot of people who were angry and the hatred towards Obama and then Trump came and the other people got angry for Trump. And so we've had this really strong division in our country, like really, you know, with Trump, because Trump also was really had no problem saying hateful things about people, too. So so it was just kind of this this back and forth. And so that was the climate we were in. And now suddenly with the vaccine reaction. And you know, people not wanting to be forced to take the vaccine, people are coming together from both sides and realizing that people that we have hated, people that we thought we had to hate, you know, I thought I had to hate a Trump supporter, or I thought I hated Obama or whatever. Like we actually have a lot in common. We actually can work together and we actually don't have to hate each other. And then you start realizing how the media, you're seeing how the media has really helped stoke um, 
has stoked the hatred of the anti-vaxxers, right? Because the media is like, oh, the anti-vaxxers are killing people. They're selfish. They're this. And you see them saying this. And then you see people getting brainwashed from that, hating on the anti-vaxxers. But you can see that that's totally wrong. We can see that because we know what's going on. But we see how other people don't see it. And then that starts to make you think about, well, when was I ever fooled by the media? When was I hateful of somebody because of something I thought? And did the media have something to do with that? And I've actually gone back and looked at my reaction towards Trump, people who supported Donald Trump, because my politics are not aligned with Trump's, with Donald Trump. But I would get more and more hatred towards Trump supporters because the stuff they would say would just be so hateful. And so, and Trump would be so hateful. And But then I realized that maybe the media was showing me over and over and over again, the hateful things that make me angry, which was clicking in me more of a hate towards them than I needed to have. And then I would see that their media would do the same thing to the liberals and the people on the left. Their right-wing media was showing them sound clips to make, to hate, to make them hate us. If that makes sense, like I'm just, I was just starting to see how the media manipulates us and divides us. And it's doing it on COVID. That's very clear for those of us who are in the middle with COVID or who see what's going on and aren't taking sides and are just trying to be rational. We see it and we see how the media has hurt this. But if you take it away from COVID, you can actually see how the media has done this on all different divisions. And maybe we don't have to hate each other and we can come together and we can be okay disagreeing on things. Like, you know, you could have like this policy and I can like this policy and we're different people and we come from different places and we don't have to hate each other just because we don't like our, you know, certain points of view. One of the things that's been more striking that in the wake of the name person campaign in Scotland is that the people who came together and found that they had a surprising amount in common have, have continued and have gone into other areas and other campaigns and they find they have a surprising amount in common there as well. And the aspects that you would expect would have re-emerged and, and divisions which have re-emerged really haven't. Um, and they're, they're finding, I think, uh, much more kind of common understanding for one another's viewpoints um, through these series of fights now. Um, I, I want to finish, um, I want to finish with a piece of music. This was used in your film and it's by Five Times August, uh, Brad Skistimus, a, a, a friend of the UK column. Uh, we've, we have interviewed him as well. I'd have to say, um, a, a lovely human being. And um, so uh, just before we play this, um, which is called Fight, Fight For You, could you, uh, could you explain why you selected this piece of music? Yeah, so this song, I believe, I'm pretty sure, uh, um, he wrote this specifically for the vaccine injured. Like he's been really involved in a lot of the fights and the fighting and the, and he's a really great activist. And um, he, in the anti-mandate rally in Los Angeles, when we all the vaccine injured, there were, I don't know, there were like 20 of us, but who were at the mandate rally, and we all went on stage at the same time. And then a few people talked, like Maddie's mother talked and a few people talked, but we all stood in unity. And then he came up at the end and he sang the song with us on the stage. So it was very meaningful and it's pretty much been kind of our anthem of the vaccine injured. 
And it's a beautiful song that he wrote. So of course I reached out to him when I made the movie and I was like, can we please use your song in the movie? And he's like, of course, like he's down to like fight for the cause. So yeah, he's awesome. So uh, with that, I want to thank you very much, Jennifer. It's been a real pleasure talking to you and, and listening to your lovely uh, Californian accent. I, I can hear the sunshine in your voice. Um, I'm, I'm from Scotland. There's a lot of horizontal rain and, and, and strong winds, so we all speak a bit more tightly because if you open your mouth too wide, all the heat leaves. Um, so it's, it's been lovely listening to you. Um, I thought it was a tremendous film. Um, I encourage everyone to go to your website. Would you like just to confirm the website address one more time? Yes. Um, thank you for having me. It's great to talk to you. Um, the website is www.anecdotalsmovie.com. Anecdotalsmovie.com. The um, and the name of the movie is Anecdotals. Yeah. Sorry, I should also mention um, the movie is free on the website for anybody to watch. And it's uh, it's on YouTube. So you should reach everywhere. And yeah, I, I want to say that because some people are like, oh, they have to buy it. But I should mention it's free. It's on the website. Please watch it. Please share it. Jennifer, thank you. It's a, it's a tremendous piece of work. Thank you very much for making it. And we'll close now with uh, Five Times August and Fight For You. Through the madness and the lies As they're holding back the truth No matter what they try I will always fight for you I will save your innocence They are trying to remove I am here at your defense And I will always fight for you Yes, I will always fight for you I will stand here in the way And I will not give up on you I will shield you from the pain In the battle on the field There is evil on the but I hope that you can feel that I will always fight for you In the darkness of the times There's a light that shines the proof It'll soon reveal the crime So I won't stop this fight for you Yes, I will always fight for you I will brave every attack And I will not give up on you I will always have your back So to every single mother, father Stand up for your sons and daughters not back down, don't let up. You are all they have for armor, so make this a war to win. Look in their eyes and tell them that I will always fight for you. 
I will stand guard at the gate And I will not give up on you I will stop each shot they take Yes, I will always fight for you I will always fight 